Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this episode is called The Decline of the Crusaders, Episode 4, The First Attack on Egypt. This and the next episode are about the Crusader invasions of Egypt in the 1160s, which I think are one of the most extraordinary events in Crusader history. Why? Two reasons. One is that they contain more twists and turns than your best crime thriller plot. And the second is that they introduce us to a young man who would become perhaps the most famous person in the whole history of the Crusades. This was Anasya Saladin Yusuf Ibn Ayyub, better known in short as Saladin, who would later become one of the greatest heroes of Islam, renowned not just for his courage, but also for his compassion and justice, which made him into the Crusaders' most respected enemy. Just a quick reminder of the political situation in the 1160s. The Second Crusade in 1147-50 to had failed to make any impact and certainly didn't recover the Crusader state of Edessa, which had fallen to Zengi in 1144. The biggest danger to the Crusaders was the growth of a major Islamic state under Zengi's son Nur ad-Din, who had united all the Arab emirates from Aleppo in Syria down to the Red Sea. This meant that Egypt was the only large Muslim state not incorporated into Nur ad-Din's empire, and so the Crusaders' next step was to try to take control of it before Nur ad-Din did. Meanwhile, the Byzantines are enjoying a brief resurgence of power and prestige, which calls them to reassert their claims to the Crusader Principality of Antioch, as you heard in the last episode, but their army is still fairly weak and they can't recover Anatolia from the Turks, who remain a powerful force in their own right. As before, I'll read extracts from my abridged version of Sir Stephen Runciman's classic History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. When the king of Jerusalem, Baldwin III, died in 1163, he left no children. The heir to the kingdom was his brother, Amalric, Count of Jaffa and Ascalon. Eight days after Baldwin's death, he was crowned king by the patriarch. Amalric was 25. He was as tall and handsome as his brother, with the same high-colouring and thick blonde beard. He was less learned, though well-informed on legal matters. While his brother loved to talk, he was taciturn. He was never as popular as his brother, lacking his charm and open manner. However, he was politically astute, and he knew the existence of the Crusader states depended on disunion amongst their Muslim neighbours. Muslim Syria was now united, but so long as Egypt was an enemy of Nur ad-Din, the situation was not desperate. The Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt was, however, in such political turmoil that its end seemed imminent, and it was now essential that it should not fall into Nur ad-Din's hands. The position in Egypt was that the governor of Upper Egypt, Shawar, had been ejected by his Arab chamberlain, Dirgim, in 1163. Dirgim, to consolidate his power, put to death everyone whose ambition he feared, which left the Egyptian army almost entirely void of senior officers. In 1160, Baldwin III had threatened to invade Egypt and had been bought off by the promise of a yearly tribute of 160,000 dinars. It had never been paid, and in September of 1163, 
Amalric made this the excuse for a sudden invasion. He crossed the Isthmus of Suez without difficulty and laid siege to Pelusium. But the Nile was in flood, and by breaking one or two dikes, Digum forced him to retire. His intervention had been noticed by Nur ad-Din, who profited by his absence to attack the weakest of the crusading states, Tripoli. He invaded the Bukaya in order to lay siege to the castle of Krak, which dominated the narrow plain. Fortunately for the Franks, Hugh, Count of Lusignan, and Geoffrey Martel, brother of the Count of Angoulême, were passing through Tripoli with their following on their return from a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They joined Count Raymond, and an urgent appeal to Antioch brought not only Beaumont III, but also the Byzantine general Constantine Colomon down from the north. The united Christian army marched swiftly through the hills and surprised the Muslims at their camp below the castle at Crack. After a short battle in which Colomon and the Byzantine troops particularly distinguished themselves, Nuruddin fled in disorder to Homs. There he regrouped his army and received reinforcements. The Christians, therefore, abandoned the pursuit. Soon afterwards, the Egyptian ex-vizier Shawar, who had escaped from Egypt, appeared at Nuruddin's court and offered, if Nuruddin would send an army to re-establish him in Cairo, to pay the expenses of the campaign, to cede districts on the frontier, to recognise Nuruddin's rule, and to provide a yearly tribute of a third of his country's revenues. Nuruddin hesitated. He feared to risk an army along roads dominated by the Franks of Outre-Jordain. It was only in April 1164, after seeking advice by opening the Quran at random, that he ordered his most trusted lieutenant, Sherku, to set out with a large detachment and go with Shawar across the desert, while he himself made a diversion by attacking Banyas. With Sherku went his nephew, Saladin, who was to become the greatest leader of Islam in the Middle Ages, but at this time he was only 27 years old and an ordinary commander in Nur ad-Din's army. Meanwhile, the Egyptian ruler Dirgan, in terror, sent off to ask for help from the king of Jerusalem, Amalric, but so quickly did Shirku move that he was across the Isthmus of Suez before the Franks were ready to intervene. Dirgan's brother, with a few troops that he could muster, was defeated near to Pelusium. By the end of May 1164, Shawar was reinstalled in Cairo and Dirgan was dead. But when restored to power, Shawar repudiated his bargain and told Shirku to go back to Syria. Shirku refused and seized Bilbais. Shawa then appealed to the king of Jerusalem, Amalric, and bade him make haste, offering him a thousand dinars for each of the 27 stages of the journey from Jerusalem to the Nile, and promising a further present to the knights of the hospital that accompanied him and expenses for the fodder of their horses. After putting his kingdom into a good state of defence, Amalric duly marched swiftly early in August to Fakus on the Nile. There Shawa joined him and they moved to besiege Sherku in Bilbais. The fortress held out for three months and was likely to fall when Amalric, who had news from Syria, decided to raise the siege on condition that Sherku 
evacuated Egypt. Sheku agreed and the two armies, Frankish and Syrian, marched on parallel routes out across the Sinai Peninsula, leaving Shawa in control of Egypt. Sheku was the last of his company to leave. When he bade farewell to the Franks, one of them, newly come to the east, asked him, was he not afraid of treachery? He answered proudly that his whole army would avenge him, and the Frank replied gallantly that he now understood why Sheku's reputation stood so high with the Crusaders. The news that had brought Amalric hurrying home came from Antioch. When he knew that Amalric had left for Egypt, Nur ad-Din struck at the northern principality and laid siege to the key fortress of Harank. With him was his brother's army from Mosul and troops of the Autokid Turkish princes of Diyakbir and Mardin, Diyat and Kir. While the lord of Harenk, Reynald of Saint-Valéry, put up a brave defence, Prince Bermond called upon Raymond Tripoli and the Armenian Toros, as well as the Byzantine Constantine Coleman, to come to his rescue. They set out together in mid-August. At the news of their coming, Nur ad-Din raised the siege. He was, we are told, particularly alarmed by the presence of the Byzantine mercenaries. As he retired, Bermond, who had some 600 knights with him, decided to follow in pursuit against the advice of Reynald of Saint-Valéry, for the Muslim army was considerably larger. The armies made contact on the 10th of August near Arta. Ignoring a warning from the Armenian Thoros, Bermond attacked at once, and when the Muslims feigned flight, he rushed headlong after them, only to fall into an ambush and to find himself and his knights surrounded by the army of Mosul. The Armenian Thoros and his brother Malay, who had been more cautious, escaped from the battlefield. The rest of the Christian army was captured or slain. Amongst the prisoners were Beaumont, Raymond of Tripoli, the Byzantine Constantine Colomond, and Hugh of Lusignan. They were taken bound together to Aleppo. Nureddin's advisers urged him to march on the defenceless city of Antioch, but he refused. If he moved towards Antioch, he said, the Byzantines would hastily send an army, and he did not want war with Byzantium. Indeed, so anxious was he not to offend Byzantium that he freed the Byzantine general Constantine Kulamon almost at once in return for 150 silken robes. Once again, Antioch was saved for Christendom by the prestige of the Byzantine emperor. Amalric, as he hurried northwards, was joined by Thierry of Flanders, who had come on his fourth pilgrimage to Palestine. With this reinforcement, he paused at Tripoli to establish his right to be regent of the county. During the count's captivity, then moved on to Antioch. There he entered into negotiations with Nur ad-Din, who agreed to release Beaumont and the Armenian Thoros for a large ransom, but only because they were the vassals of the Byzantine emperor. He would not allow Raymond of Tripoli to go, nor his older prisoner Raymond of Châtillon. Amalric himself was disquieted when a Byzantine envoy came to ask him what he was doing at Antioch. He replied by sending to Constantinople the Archbishop of Caesarea and his butler, Odo of Saint-Amand, to ask the emperor for the hand of an imperial princess and to suggest an alliance for the conquest of Egypt. The Byzantine emperor Manuel kept the embassy waiting two years for an answer. Meanwhile, Amalric had to return south, for Nur ad-Din, instead of attacking Antioch, had suddenly appeared in October before Banyas, whose lord Humphrey II of Toron was with Amalric's army. He had spread rumours that his objective was Tiberias, and the local Frankish militia was concentrated there. 
The crusader garrison at Banyas put up a brave resistance. At first, it was hoped that Thierry of Flanders, who had just arrived in Palestine, would come to the rescue, when suddenly, owing perhaps to treason, the fortress capitulated. Nur ad-Din occupied the surrounding country and threatened to march in on Galilee, whose barons bought him off by promising a tribute. Beaumont of Antioch, as soon as he was released, went to Constantinople to visit his sister and to beg his brother-in-law for money, with which to pay part of his ransom that he still owed to Nur the Byzantine Emperor Manuel gave the required aid. In return, Bohemond journeyed back to Antioch with a Greek patriarch. The Latin patriarch Emery went protesting into exile at, to the castle of Ursar. For the next five years, the Greeks dominated the Antiochene church. Meanwhile, Nuruddin spent 1165 and 66 in making surprise attacks on fortresses on the eastern slopes of the Lebanon, while his general Sherku raided Utrejordain, destroying a castle that the Templars had built in a grotto south of Oman. At the end of 1166, Sherku at last obtained permission from his master to invade Egypt once more. He persuaded the caliph at Baghdad to represent the project as a holy war against the heretic caliphate of the Shia Fatimids. And this argument probably affected Nur ad-Din, who had grown deeply religious since a previous illness. He provided reinforcements from Aleppo for Shirku and his army. Shirku set out from Damascus in January 1167. Once again, he took Saladin with him. He had made no secret of his intentions, and Shawar had time again to call on the king of Jerusalem, Amalric's help. The king was at Nablus and summoned his barons to meet him there. After he'd pointed out the danger to Palestine should the Sunni Syrians under Nur ad-Din conquer Egypt, the high court agreed on a full expedition to save the Egyptian Shawar. The whole fighting force of the kingdom was to take part or else to stay on the frontiers to guard against attacks in the king's absence. Anyone who could not come was to pay a tenth of his year's income. Before the crusader army was ready, news came that Sherku was passing through the Sinai Desert. Amalric sent the troops that were at hand to intercept him, but it was too late. A terrible sandstorm almost overwhelmed Sherku's army. But he reached the Isthmus of Suez about the first days of February. There he learnt that the Frankish army had set out on the 30th of January. He therefore marched southwestward through the desert to reach the Nile at Atfi, 40 miles above Cairo. There he crossed and came down the West Bank and set up his camp at Giza, opposite the capital. Meanwhile, the Frankish army approached Cairo from the northeast. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. The Egyptian Shawar met it some way from the city and guided it into an encampment on the east bank of the Nile, a mile from the city walls. After he had refused a suggestion from Sherku to unite against the Christians, he made a pact with the king of Jerusalem, Amalric. 
The francs were to be paid 400,000 bezants, half at once, half a little later, on condition that Amalric solemnly swore not to leave Egypt until Sherko had been driven out. The king sent Hugh, lord of Caesarea, and a Templar called Geoffrey, who probably spoke Arabic, into Cairo to obtain the caliph's formal confirmation of the treaty. Their reception at the palace was superb. They were led past colonnades and fountains and gardens where the court menageries and aviaries were kept through hall after hall, heavy with hangings of silk and golden thread, studded with jewels, till at last a great golden curtain was raised to show the boy caliph seated veiled on his golden throne. The oaths to keep the treaty were sworn, and Hugh, then, as his king's deputy, wished to seal the pact in the western fashion by shaking the caliph's bare hand. The Egyptian courtiers, however, were horrified, but at last their sovereign, smiling contemptuously, was persuaded to remove his glove. The ambassadors then retired, deeply impressed, as was intended by the accumulated wealth of the Fatimid Empire. For a month, the armies glared at each other, neither able to cross the river in face of the other's opposition. Then King Amalric managed to effect a crossing onto an island at the head of the delta a little to the north, and from there onto the left bank, where he surprised one of Shirku's corps. Shirku, whose army was outnumbered by the Franco-Egyptian army, retired southward up the Nile. Amalric and Shawar followed, but as a precaution they left a strong garrison in Cairo under Shawar's son Camille and Hugh of Ibelin. The entry of Hugh's regiment into Cairo and the free access to the palace allowed to the officers horrified the stricter Muslim circles in the city. Not far from Minya in Middle Egypt, Sherku prepared to cross the Nile again, with the idea of falling back to invade the Syrian frontier. He encamped at Ushmunin, amongst the ruins of the ancient Hermopolis. There, the Franco-Egyptian army caught up with him. It was larger than his, even without the garrison left at Cairo. But Sherku's army was chiefly composed of light Turkish horsemen, whereas the Egyptians were infantrymen, and the Franks had only a few hundred knights with them. Against the advice of his emirs, he decided to give battle. Amalric, on his side, hesitated, but St. Bernard then made one of his unfortunate interventions into crusading history. He appeared in a vision to the king and taunted him as being unworthy of the fragment of the true cross that he wore round his neck. Only when King Amalric vowed to be a better Christian would he bless the relic. Thus encouraged, King Amalric next morning on the 18th of March 1167 led an attack on the Syrians. Sherku adopted the usual Turkish tactics. His centre, under Saladin, yielded, and when the king and his knights galloped on in pursuit, he flung his right wing against the Franco-Egyptian left, which crumbled. King Amalric found himself surrounded. That he had escaped alive was due, it was thought, to his blessed relic, but many of his best knights were slain, and others, including Hugh of Caesarea, taken prisoner. Amalric and Shawa and the remnants of their army retreated precipitately to Cairo to join the forces of the garrison. Sherku was victorious, but there was still an allied army in the field. Instead of attempting an attack on Cairo, he recrossed the Nile and moved swiftly northwest through the Fayoum. Within a few days, he appeared before Alexandria, and the great city where Shawa was hated opened its gates to him. Meanwhile, King Amalric and Shawa reformed their army outside Cairo. Despite its losses, it still was larger than Sherku's army. They therefore followed him to Alexandria and blockaded the city 
city, a few reinforcements arrived from Palestine and Frankish ships sailed in to complete the blockade. After about a month, Shirkru was threatened with starvation. Leaving Saladin with about a thousand men to hold the city, he slipped out one night in May with the greater part of his army, past King Amalric's camp and made for Upper Egypt. Amalric was furious and wished to go in pursuit, but Shawar advised that Shirku should be allowed if he wished to pillage the Upper Egyptian towns. It was more important to recover Alexandria. By the end of June, Saladin's position within the city was so desperate that he had to beg his uncle to return. Shirku realised that nothing more could be done. He approached Alexandria and sent one of his Frankish prisoners to Amalric's camp to suggest peace on the basis that both he and the Franks should evacuate Egypt and that Shawar should promise not not to penalise those of his subjects who, at Alexandria and elsewhere, had supported the invaders. Amalric, who was nervous about affairs in Palestine and Tripoli, accepted his terms. On the 4th of August, the Frankish army, with the king at its head, entered Alexandria. Saladin and his army were escorted out with full military honours, though the local population would have gladly torn him to pieces, blaming him for their recent misery. But their troubles were not over. No sooner did Shawar's officials enter the city than anyone suspected of collaboration with Nuruddin Syrians was arrested. Saladin complained to Amalric, who ordered Shawa to let the prisoners go. He himself provided boats to convey Shirku's wounded by sea to Acre, where unfortunately those that had recovered were sent to work in the sugar plantations until the king came in person to release them. During the negotiations, Saladin made many friends among the crusaders, and it was believed afterwards that he'd been knighted by the constable Humphrey of Turon. Shirku and Saladin left Egypt about the 10th of August and reached Damascus in September. Amalric and his army went to Cairo to relieve Hugh of Ibelin from his garrison duty, but Shawar was made to sign a pact promising to pay a yearly tribute of 100,000 pieces of gold and to keep a Frankish high commissioner and a small Frankish garrison in Cairo in control of the gates of the city. The Crusader king then returned to Palestine, reaching Ascalon on the 20th of August. Some of the Frankish lords thought that a better bargain could have been made, but Amalric was unwilling to risk his forces further in Egypt without safeguarding Frankish Syria against Nur ad-Din's attacks. While he was still in Egypt, Nur ad-Din had led a raid into the territory of Tripoli without capturing any important fortresses. It was, however, necessary to reorganise the the defence of the country. The chief problem was always manpower. The resident families were reduced by death or by capture. Visiting crusaders like Thierry of Flanders could only be used for specific campaigns. King Amalric therefore mainly depended on the military orders, to whom in 1167 and the succeeding years a large number of fortresses with the surrounding lands were handed over. The gifts were particularly important in Tripoli, whose count was still a captive and where there were few great noble families. Tortosa and almost the whole of the north of the county passed to the control of the Templars, while the Hospitallers, who held Crac des Chevaliers, were given charge of the Bukaya. While the military orders were to lead the defence of the Crusader states, Amalric's next step was to seek a closer alliance with Byzantium. In August 1167, when he'd just come back from Egypt, news reached him that his ambassadors to Constantinople, the Archbishop of Caesarea and the butler Odo, had 
had landed at Tyre with the Byzantine emperor's beautiful young grandniece, Maria Komnena. He hastened to meet her, was delighted with what he saw, and their marriage was celebrated in the Cathedral of Tyre by the Patriarch on the 29th of August. The Queen was given Nablus and its territories as her dowry. With her were two high officials of her uncle's court, his cousins George Paleologus and Manuel Comnenus, who were empowered to discuss with Amalric the question of an alliance. Negotiations followed and a treaty was agreed in which Byzantium and the Kingdom of Jerusalem would jointly attack Egypt and divide their conquests. The scene was now set for a second Egyptian war. And that's the end of this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on this podcast. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear how the Crusaders launch another attack on Egypt, this time with Byzantine help.